Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, if any of you listening work in the media industry, there's a good chance you will have had to work with a content management system at some point, the dreaded CMS. If those three letters give you cold shivers... Then here are three others to consider, GPP. It's a platform for publishers, Glide Publishing Platform, which makes it easy to get your content out to the world. If you want to know why so many publishers are using it, then simply go to the site www.gpp.io. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly dive into the fascinating and contested world of media, speaking to key figures in an international industry. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, a remarkable interview with arguably Britain's greatest living photographer, as Sir Don McCullen opens up about his career in and out of war zones. He says he's been damaged by some of the things he's seen, talks about feeling as though he's stealing images of suffering, and gives us his reaction to the horrors of continuing conflicts. I feel as in a way I've wasted the last 50 years of my life, really. And because as soon as one war is finished, there is another one waiting in the wings. Because there has been the Ukraine, there was Aleppo, there is now this terrible scene in the Middle East. It's an extraordinary interview. Listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And Media Confidential is on X slash Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod. So, Lionel, we're both in London. What have you been monitoring? Well, I've been watching very closely the coverage of the bid for the Telegraph Group, quite struck by the way Lord Moore formerly Charles Moore, editor of The Telegraph, Spectator and Daily Telegraph, has really framed the debate by labelling the bid by Redbird, which is an American investment firm, and IMI, which is Abu Dhabi's royal family's investment group. He's framed this as a state takeover by Abu Dhabi of Britain's conservative newspapers, And really, that's led the debate. And you've had all sorts of, by the way, interested parties, because Rupert Murdoch would like to buy The Spectator, and the Daily Mail certainly would like to buy The Telegraph Group. They've all been very critical, all focusing on Abu Dhabi and not the American group. It's difficult, isn't it, to disentangle those interests? I mean, The the Times occasionally declares an interest. I, I noticed today, we're recording on Tuesday... They said Rupert Murdoch is said to be interested, like they couldn't pick up the phone and ask him. But uh, there was not the similar level of interest or disapproval when Saudi money came into the independent or Russian influence arguably came into the independent. Uh, And of course, you know, the, the Times is owned by an American citizen who changed his nationality from Australian. So it's a it's a kind of sort of difficult area. But I I can see the problem with Abu Dhabi. I think the key point here is that while the Telegraph Group has been owned by Conrad Black, 
had his legal difficulties, um, Barclay Brothers walking bankrupts for more than a decade. The fact is that the big money in this bid, said to be maybe three quarters of the £700 million or so, is coming from Abu Dhabi, the royal family. It's the government. It's not a private sector individual. And of course, it, it's so important to the right because the Telegraph is effectively the house journal of the Conservative Party or the, the right, whether that's represented by the Conservative Party nowadays or not. But they would feel anxious, I think, about it being outside the sphere of influence. So this poses something of a dilemma for the uh, government. You have the culture secretary minded to refer the American Abu Dhabi bid to the competition authorities, but the foreign office is worried about antagonizing an important ally, the UAE, in the Gulf, very rich, big investor in the UK. And I think um, Rishi Sunak, I wouldn't be surprised if he too is concerned. UAE was at his big investment conference this week in, in London, Hampton Court. The way this bid is going is that the Abu Dhabi Americans, who look to be in the catbird seat, having put money on the table, ready to repay this huge loan owned by the Barclay Brothers to Lloyds Bank. They're actually now, I think, they've lost ground. The The winds are blowing in favour of a referral, I think. It kind of means there are no good options. I don't think Paul Marshall, on the strength of his ownership of GB News, is a terrific option. I don't think it's great that the Daily Mail might be a candidate because that leads to huge plurality issues. Rupert Murdoch owning The Spectator after what he's done with Fox News... Uh, so, I mean, each of the, each of the bids comes with, with problems, but um, it sounds like it could take weeks, if not months, for this bid to land. The one thing that could change the equation is that the Americans, by the way, Jeff Zucker, formerly head of CNN, formerly ran the Today show on NBC, very experienced media executive. He's fronting the American side of this bid. I understand that they really are ready to put cast iron guarantees on editorial independence for the Telegraph Group should they win. Will that be enough? We've seen uh, offers or promises of editorial guarantees go up in smoke uh, in the previous era, haven't we? We have, including with Rupert Murdoch, but um, that's a different story. I, I, I've been um, continuing to monitor the... Uh, you <laughs> won't let go, Alan. I won't I let go. The, the, the story of... Um, the BBC director, Robbie Gibb, who uh, no one's denied the story, worked in concert with aides at Number 10 to try and fix the uh, the chairmanship of Ofcom. Why is that wrong? Because it's obviously wrong for the regulated party of the BBC to be trying to pick the regulator. I mean, it's just obviously improper. You'll remember I first wrote to the BBC about two weeks about, ago about this and they, uh, they There's always a problem me. with the post in this system. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, uh, a week ago, I uh, emailed Dame Ellen Kloss-Stevens, who is the uh, BBC's acting chair. I chased it up yesterday, and I'm, I'm told I will get a response. But there was a spectacular appearance by Nadine Doris, who was the uh, culture minister under Boris Johnson, uh, on the Ian Dale program on LBC, uh, in which Ian pressed her to name the person who, she says, switched her advice note to the prime minister while it was in the red box. Uh, and it was the most vicious piece of interrogation I've seen uh, since the Spanish Inquisition, because after 11 seconds, uh, she went from, I'm never going to say who he is, to naming him as <laughs> Dougie Smith, this shadowy figure at number 10. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. 
But it seems to me impossible for the BBC to be uh, maintaining this line that they're just not going to help journalists with their inquiries. I mean, this is what used to be called fact-checking. You know, we're trying to check a story that is in public domain, and that's what BBC journalists do every day of the year. And for the BBC itself not to take part in fact-checking seems to me unsustainable. But we will see. Well, I love this story, partly because, Alan, this must be one of the first stories you've ever done where Nadine Doris has been the primary source because you read it and in the book. She's, yes, quite she's, um, But the other, it's, it's a whodunit. It is a whodunit. And I know you're not going to let go of the story. And it is pretty incredible in today's Britain, 2023. Here you have the chair of Ofcom, the most important media regulator, one of the most powerful regulators in the country. You have established, shall we say, links at the highest level in the BBC, in the government, over the appointment of the chair of Ofcom. Don't forget the special offer, which means you can enjoy Prospects Journalism for a full month absolutely free. Take advantage of the new one-month free trial offer, and you can read all the magazine's best long reads, commentary, and cultural criticism, with new writing added daily to our website, as well as the entire 28-year archive. Sign up now at subscribe.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk slash mediaconfpod. So Don McCullen is one of our greatest living photographers, a photojournalist, war photographer, though he doesn't like being called that. He's now 88, uh, as well as having a retrospective exhibition in Rome. Uh, there's a new book of the key photographs from his career. He's been shooting pictures ever since he was about 15 as a poor kid growing up in Finsbury Park. Uh, and he really is the iconic capturer of images from war in certainly in the 20th century in Vietnam and working in dozens of wars after that, initially for the Sunday Times, but also for the Observer and other outlets. Lionel, you, you overlapped with him at the Sunday Times, I think. Yes, I joined in 1981. He was still around. He'd occasionally see him in the office and take a bow, frankly, because... Uh, one of the books that I was given by my father, who was also a journalist, in my last year at university was Harry Evans' Five Great Books on Newspaper Journalism. And there was one huge, fat book called Pictures on a Page. Um, I had the same book. Isn't it a wonderful book? Fantastic book. And I, you could study those images. Harry taught us how to crop a picture, how to write a a caption, but also it's the commentary behind the image. And Don McCullen's photographs are in there. It's extraordinary to uh, talk to him. He first, I think his first commission was from The Observer in uh, 1959, age 23. So it's quite a long career. Well, we recorded this interview with Sir Don McCullen two weeks ago, which is important because I asked him about what happened that day in Gaza when the Israeli Defence Forces had invited cameras to view what Israel says it found at the Al-Shifa hospital and his response as a celebrated and experienced photojournalist is very interesting. We're joined by Sir Don McCullen, who's published a beautiful book called Life, Death and Everything in Between which includes images dating back from my calculation, Don, 62 years, starting in 1960. I wanted to ask you about 
the emotion that you now feel watching war and the images that you're seeing coming out of Israel and Gaza, how do you react as a as somebody who sees these images? Because you know better than anybody what it's like to be in the middle of war. Well, strange enough, I've developed a kind of attitude problem regarding my, my situation. There's nothing worse than being called a war photographer. I, I inherited photography. I didn't really set out to become a photographer, but I inherited photography. And so all the, the wars and situations I've seen, I feel now, uh, I, I feel as in a way I've wasted the last 50 years of my life, really. And because as soon as one war is finished, there is another one waiting in the wings to start. So I feel uh, you preach slightly to the converted in my case, the people I know and people like yourselves. Uh, we all have an aversion to a kind of brutality of war. Um, but, you know, the general public, you know, I don't know how they kind of think about the world and the, the world they live in. And, and by the way, as long as there are armament factories producing weapons of war, there will always be war. And as long as there are politicians who can't sit down around the table and, and work it out that way, uh, there, there will never be any peace in well, what's left of my lifetime and probably future generations to come. Don, I know you don't like talking about yourself. But over the years, and, and I was privileged to work at the Sunday Times when you were still taking photographs for that newspaper, you produced some of the most memorable images of war, but also uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, civil disturbance, truly memorable pictures. Today, do you think that it is possible for a photographer of your mould to still make a mark in the age of instant transmission of digital images, etc. I don't think it's a, a problem because of various restrictions, particularly of this war in Israel right now. The, most of the correspondents are, are not getting anywhere near the scene of the events. You know, if it wasn't for these people with their iPhones, we wouldn't get any kind of imagery coming out at all of these wars. That happened also in the war in Aleppo, at the end of the war in Aleppo, it was too dangerous for us to cross the border from Turkey, which was always illegal anyway, um, because there was a danger of being kidnapped by ISIS or one of the warlords and sold on to ISIS. So in the end, um, the last of the reportage coming out of the, the war in Aleppo in Syria was done by the guys with, with iPhones. And many of them lost their lives as well. So I think the idea today that People like me who are not covering wars, I don't think it's that important anymore because there will always be somebody there with an iPhone. Well, Don, I, I hesitate to ask some advice here, but you did prove yourself to be extraordinarily resourceful as a photographer in conflict zones, throwing yourself in the river in the Mekong with your Nikon camera still working as the bullets shot past what kind of advice would you give to journalists and, and photographers who are trying to cover the story of the Gaza hospital, which is surrounded and now infiltrated, uh, occupied by Israeli troops? They think Hamas are there, buried. What, what advice would you give to those journalists? Well, first of all, you, you almost uh, answered the own question yourself. They are surrounded, so therefore it's it would be impossible to get in from an outsider's point of view. I think the Israelis have always been very careful. They were very cross with me because I covered the Six-State War. I was the only journalist in Jerusalem when they captured the city. 
I wasn't aware of the impact at the time. I was sitting down, and an Israeli soldier came to me and said, what the hell are you sitting down for? You should be at the Wailing Wall. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about, the Wailing Wall? So I wasn't totally aware of, of that moment of tremendous history that I was privileged to, to see. So I went up through these alleyways, and I could see the Wailing Wall and what it meant to the Israelis. So it was amazing to be there. But in this instant now, the Israelis have they've always had the smartest information in the Middle East. They knew more than anything. So they're right now, they've, they've managed to keep all the journalists out of this Gaza situation. And in many ways, it might be almost to their advantage. With journalists, we're, we're always tenacious, and we will always get in if we can get in. It took me weeks and weeks with a friend of mine, Charles Glass, to get into Mosul when towards the end of that. And that was a similar situation, you know, a destroyed city town with lots of snipers and windows that can kill you. And was it worth me losing my life to get a picture, a negative? I don't think so, really. Don, the, the latest news is that the Israelis actually have allowed a limited number of journalists into the hospital. They have produced Kalashnikovs, grenades, which they say are stored or were stored in the hospital as part of Hamas forces. So if you were there as a photographer, would you be taking photographs of those um, uh, weapons, caches? And how would, you, how would you cover that, given that the Israelis have offered conditional access to you? Well, first of all, I, I, I welcome the question, really, because only today on the train coming back here to Somerset did I see in the telegraph the photographs of the very things you're talking about. I had a suspicion about that photograph. I, I analysed it in my own way and, and the knowledge I've, I've gathered over the last 60 years. I suspect that those weapons were discarded by the odd um, Hamas fighter who thought better of losing his life and dumping them. There weren't enough weapons in number and total to convince me that that was a, a really serious headquarters of Hamas. If, if it was, you would have seen far greater amounts of ammunition and weaponry. So I thought, I even had doubtful thoughts whether it wasn't slightly put up, that picture. But secondly, I think my own version is is that they were probably the few fighters who, who went there, who'd made up their minds they weren't going to lose their lives, and they dumped those weapons somewhere in the grounds of that hospital. That's just my own personal view. But I'm not really the kind of person to speculate in a situation of wars, you know, most journalists are meant to be impartial, and therefore one is meant to concentrate on your job, you know, keep your personal thoughts to yourself. And, and by the way, I was only ever a simple photographer. I was never, I never had the wisdom of the many great journalists I worked with. My position there was purely to observe and push that button. Regretfully, you, you said you felt much of your work had been wasted because of the futility of continuing war but I, I wonder if that's you're being fair to yourself there were there were images that you produced from Vietnam from Biafra um, and uh, other situations where a, a single image had a huge impact on shortening a famine or a war don't you think that's true I've always been a pessimist in my life you know the, I've seen so many terrible tragedies in my life but being an optimist has been <laughs> an issue with me. Frankly, there are certain pictures I took in the war. The Vietnam War was a very difficult war to cover emotionally because you felt really that were you also being used by the American, that you were given accreditation of a major. So that meant you 
we'd jump on any airplane, any. The whole thing was too conveniently at your disposal. But the covering the Biafran war, where one day I walked into a schoolhouse, which was converted into a so-called hospital, if you can dare to believe, and there were several hundred dying children looking at me. And I walked in, and because they thought, oh, here comes old Whitey, he's going to bring us some food aid. But no, I didn't. All I brought those children in that that terrible scene that day were two Nikon cameras hanging around my neck. So I've always analyzed and doubted my myself and my position in, in this weird, strange role that I was meant to be operating under. I was uh, uh, under the cloak of, you know, um, newspapers and things like that. I went there with emotion more than intellect. I, I can see that, that that would be a traumatic situation to be to be placed in. But nevertheless, those pictures, once they went round the world, had the effect of dramatically impacting what happened next. Well, I, I think it's a good idea that we're there. I mean, uh, one would have felt that it would have been just as important to me to have walked into Birkenau and Auschwitz. It wasn't until, until it was all over did we realise the catastrophic scale of, the, of this terrible tragedy. It's still the greatest tragedy in the world today. I mean, we, we don't forget about the, the Holocaust. We don't forget it because there are memorials and things to remind us. But um, I, I just don't know how to get through this conversation and not feel that I have wasted my time because there has been the Ukraine. There was Aleppo. There is now this terrible scene in the Middle East which has to be resolved one way or the other. And my only conclusion, you know, disregarding my photographic position, is that people have got to sit down and create a two-state solution. If we could solve this war, maybe we could look to the future in solving other wars. But now, of course, I'm jumping out of my photographic skin and becoming somebody I'm not meant to be. I'm just a man in, in, in this journey of humanity who's seeing too many um, tragedies and, and, you know, being a photographer is, um, seems very unimportant, really. There's one image, a very famous image, of you, you're behind a U.S. Marine throwing a grenade in 1968. You're right in the middle of that action at tremendous risk to your own life. And it, it's very reminiscent of one of the, of the pictures of, of Robert Kappa on, on D-Day. What drove you to place yourself in such jeopardy to get an image like that? Well, I wouldn't be telling the truth if I didn't think that there was a streak of ambition in me that said to me, you know, if you get a great picture. And we were always looking at the Robert Cabot picture of the falling soldier in the Spanish Civil War in 1937, which has turned out to be under suspicion of being a hoax. Most photographers I know who went to war wanted to emulate that picture. They wanted to, which is actually just disrespectful. If you think about it, it's really awful to think, oh, I'm going to get a better picture than Robert Capra of the falling soldier. Why would I, why would any of us want to see a man die to give us a great picture? So there's a moral streak in me that's very uncomfortable. And I think that's the right way it should be. I, I've always had my own rules in my photographic life. And in that war in Vietnam, in that citadel battle in Hue, I was never a soldier. I, I would have never been accepted or wanted to be a soldier by the Marines that I was with. But one day I photographed a Marine who'd been hit by what they call friendly fire. But I don't think there's any fire that's actually friendly when, it's, when you get hit with one of those M16 bullets that riddles right through your body. So I took this picture of him against the wall 
and it looked like Jesus Christ coming from the cross. I mean, it really does. And then I felt incredibly guilty. I thought, I took this man away from the battle. I, I had him on my shoulders, and I ran him away from the battle. And he said, um, when he got finally to Guam, to the where they sent all the injured out of Vietnam, he wrote his mother a letter and said, this strange man, this Englishman, took me away from the battle. And so here comes the story, which has taken so long for me to tell you. There is insanity in war, and I think there were moments of insanity that darkened my brain and my soul. And there's no accounting for the way one's mind thinks when you're in a war situation, seeing men dying, men crying, begging for their mothers because they are dying with horrendous. So the whole thing is not negotiable. It's not manageable. And then you ask yourself, why am I here? You know. So when I said previous that I thought nothing good has come of my work in that sense, it's because most of it was clouded by the fog of war. Well, listening to what Don was saying there, it's almost like he's suffering from imposter syndrome. Why am I here? Am I taking advantage of people by taking that 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 photograph? At the same time, he's obviously enormously competitive. He wants to be first. And I suppose the other thing is that he's speaking about a different era, isn't he? Where the man or the woman was on the spot taking the photograph. Now war is much more controlled. You can see that in the Gaza-Israeli conflict. But also people wandering around with iPhones, taking a, a completely different kind of photograph. Yeah, yeah. I think he started his career at the sort of high watermark of journalists being able to um, roam freely around battlefields. I mean, it was extraordinary in Vietnam. Anybody who had a couple of letters from news organizations could get themselves accredited, and then they could they could roam around the, the battlefield at will. That um, was replaced by an, an era of total control. You, you remember... I mean, stories like, well, I was really thinking of, the, you know, the Russian assault on Grozny, you know, where they just flattened an entire city. And I would doubt there are any images from that because there was no way you could get anywhere near then. Then there's the era of embeds where it's all very tightly controlled. Now, of course, the, it's, a, it's the complete opposite. The images coming out of Gaza taken by what you might call citizen journalists uh, are flooding the Internet. Uh, there's a remarkable photographer, a 24-year-old guy called Motaz Aziza, uh, who's just been named one of Time's 100 most important people of the year. He's got 15 million followers, 15 million followers on, on Instagram, and is producing really heartbreaking pictures. So that, that era of control, I think, is now gone. And it's one of the good uses of social media, to, to my mind, that the citizen journalist is able to say, look, this is happening. It's bearing witness, which is what journalism is. I think it also plays very interestingly into what we loosely call the narrative. Uh, who is controlling the narrative? Who's got the high ground in the misinformation or information war, propaganda war? And my judgment at the moment is that the Israelis have been on the defensive. They tried to open up a bit by offering access to journalists selectively in the Gaza Strip, visiting the hospital, looking at weapons. But overall, I think the images which have come out often from citizen journalists have been the slaughter of civilians, somewhat overshadowing, allowing people to forget what actually happened on October the 7th, the atrocities committed against Israelis in their homes. 
and you now get into this. There's a piece in the Times today about how TikTok is now flooded with Palestinian information, whether it's information or disinformation. We won't know, I suspect, for, for a long time. And the question is whether this is just people uh, sharing, because there's no one preventing people sharing different kinds of images, or whether this is an algorithm that is amplifying we're in a new era, and historians will be writing about this for decades to come, I suspect. More from Sir Don McCullen shortly on Media Confidential, when he talks about some of the most dramatic images of his career and feeling poisoned by his success as a war photographer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, COP28, the United Nations Committee of Parties Summit on Climate Change, is just around the corner. This year, the global leaders will be assembling once again to discuss ways to cut emissions and attempt to halt or at least slow down rising global temperatures. They're meeting in Dubai. Um, if I had a way of doing uh, ironic exclamation marks, I'd do that. And joining the conference will be Simon Sharp. Now, Simon's a former UK diplomat and author of Five Times Faster, Rethinking the Science, Economics and Diplomacy of Climate Change. And a preview of this year's proceedings appears in this week's Prospect podcast and this month's Prospect magazine. Looking at the actual United Nations climate change negotiations, are they still serving a purpose? I think that's a more difficult question. I think they have achieved something over the last 30 years, which is some level of consensus. They've established some shared global goals, temperature goals, global net zero, all that kind of thing. And they've provided some mutual encouragement between countries to set national targets and to come up with some actions to follow through. So we should give that credit where it's due, but we also have to recognise we're at a moment in time where far more than that is needed. We have to have structural change in the global economy five times faster this decade than we had on average over the last two decades. Let's not fool ourselves that we can achieve that by each country just acting on its own. We actually need real diplomacy. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber. And on this episode, we're talking to the legendary photographer Sir Don McCullen, now 88, who has a new book of key images from throughout his career. Don, in 1979, you made a vow not to go back into war zones, to branch out into other photography. You produced memorable photography 
in the northern towns, in the mining towns. It was exhibited at, at Tate Britain. It's marvellous. There's great pictures of humanity there. But you went back into war zones. Why? Well, can I cut this up twice, this question? A great question, really, Lado. First of all, I've been poisoned by war, poisoned by ambition, poisoned by dreaming of, you know, um, having my name under my work, slightly elevating me in front of my emotional commitment. And this is the other part of the uh, answer to your question, is, is that, frankly, there are what I call social wars that are equally as important as the wars in foreign countries. Why should there be two million poor people living in this country, a country that once uh, dominated a fifth of the of the globe with its imperial kind of colonialism, which was also terrible. I came from a very poor background. I understood poverty. And when I went to the north of England and I walked those in through those satanic cities, I'd already seen those at the age of 15 when I worked on a steam train when I left school at the age of 15 with no education, quite a lot of ignorance. And the poison that I keep talking about is in my blood and it still won't go away. And I pay the penalty when I put my head on the pillow at night because it all comes back with extreme clarity and prevents me from sleeping. And so the only way I thought I could get around this would be intermittent of wars was to do with the landscape around where I live here in Somerset. And that landscape, I became my therapist. And, you know, I would stand for two hours on a hill in Somerset here and get no picture. But I thought that was like a kind of it was a medicine that cured me because my patience is, is never ending. If I go to an airport and they say the flight's been delayed for 12 hours, I'd sit there without any anger. Or I would say, okay, but if I'm not answering this question properly, all I can say to you is, is that inside me there is something that I can't release. I would long to go to the Ukraine, but I, could, I would never survive because I can't hardly walk properly, let alone run. And you can never outrun a bullet anyway. And I would like to go to Gaza, but I know there would be restrictions. You'd never get near the, the real story. So we're back where we started in our conversation here. I am damaged. And I'm aware of it. But I'm also aware of, you know, that I've been walking on thin ice for the last 60-odd years. It's mundane to ask a technical question after that, Don. But all your pictures in this book are black and white. Uh, you mentioned the, the the iPhone generation now. What, what what do you think technically of the images that are now produced from from war zones? I'm thinking particularly of the astonishing images we're seeing coming out of Gaza, most of which I think have been taken on iPhones. Thank you, speaking. It's another interesting question because I'm not a very technical person, and there's also been a danger with me that I've turned a lot of the photographs I've taken into icons which one would assume you would only see in museums and galleries and things like that. So there is a danger of over-responding the way I look through my eyes and interpret through my eyes. Is I want to captivate the, the eyes of the, of the person who is suffering and directly in front of me. And the eyes tell the story, in my opinion. They tell you the story of that person's suffering and, and the injustice of that person standing in that moment. Um, also, I've always used an exposure meter, and I always print my own pictures. I always say that I don't want to take a picture without the exposure meter, and I don't want to be killed for a picture that's not possible to me because it's underexposed. So 
the technical side of photography, I've always tried to shove aside or put behind me because I'm I'm not one of those gifted people who knows how to read, you know, instructions and things on, on, on equipment and things. I I operate purely as a human man with a pair of good eyes that were bequeathed to me by my maker. So um, I relied very heavily upon the opportunity. It's always the opportunity. If it's there, I'm going to eat it all up and swallow it and get every ounce of juice from that moment. But, you know, there is a danger that, you know, one becomes greedy and selfish and you think these images belong to you. They do not. You are stealing these images from people suffering in front of you. So, you know, I feel as if I'm walking on burning coals that that are burning my feet and and telling me that what I'm doing isn't always right. I have a conscience and I know what I did in the wars were not always right. Um, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us. The the book is a beautiful book. It's it's um called Life, Death, and Everything in Between. It's published by Ghost Books, G-O-S-T Books, uh, and it's a fitting tribute to a remarkable life and career. Well, I, I personally didn't come up with a title, which I thought was the most wonderful title. Fantastic. But it was very nice to, to talk to you, and I hope in a way you would understand a strange way come back to you with my uh, your questions and my thinking. It may not seem quite appropriate to others, but that's that's the life I've had in the last sixty five years. Don, it's been a great privilege to talk to you again. All I can say is that you're a stern judge, but in your work there's sometimes a terrible beauty, not my phrase, but WB Yeats, but also always Don a humanity. Oh, that's very kind of you to say that. And um, I, 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 um, I've always thought that was the problem with my pictures, even the most tragic um, images. And when I mentioned the iconic kind of side of things, um, there is a beauty in war that people would never understand. One day in Vietnam, in the particular battle in the 1968 battle, I saw a black soldier crying because a medic who I'd photographed many times during that battle, helping others to survive, was killed by a sniper. And there was nothing more extraordinary to see the tears streaming down his face. And I thought people would never believe me, and they would think I was self-indulgent to say, you will see moments of great beauty in war. You will see them. And I had the best eyes in the world, and I knew I saw them. And they, and, 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 and it does happen in war occasionally, you'll see uh, gifts from another human being. War is 199% bad and evil and, and woefully wrong. But occasionally you will get that, that moment of light that comes and shows you something, allows you to walk away and think there's no hope, but there might be. Lionel, I was thinking of, I think it's Coleridge's phrase, emotion recollected in tranquility. When I'm listening to to this great man now, living his life out in Somerset and when he can going out into the fields to capture pictures of peace and nature but at the same time recollecting these emotions that just won't go away and I found that profoundly moving I know he has all kinds of regrets about his career but actually I think he does himself a disservice there's no question that the photographs that came out of Vietnam for instance they may not have stopped war for all time but i my feeling is that, that they certainly shortened the duration of the, the Vietnam War. What, what do you think? 
Well, indeed. And these were not just pictures of suffering, civilian casualties or soldiers who'd been shot, wounded. There is a, I think I used the phrase, seeing you've gone for Coleridge, I've gone for Yeats, the terrible beauty of war. And he describes that. It's very poignant, uh, the image of the, the soldier who's been shot by friendly fire. And he captures him almost in like Jesus on the crucifix, and he makes that comparison. I think he really he has suffered himself through his work. But he's wrong when he says nothing good has come of my work. That's too harsh a self-criticism. I think he's he's really brutally honest about motivation, his own feelings, the sense of some guilt in, in, in what he's doing. But overall... I think he can be immensely proud of what he accomplished as a photographer and professional journalist. So before we finish today, uh, Lala, I don't know what you've been watching or doing. I've, I've been uh, watching this BBC series, Boat Story, and episode one, talking of violence, which we have been today, is kind of, it has got Tarantino levels of bloodshed by the time you get to episode two and three, you realise this is all pastiche. So you just have to get through the, the the rivers of blood in the first episode, and after that, it's I think it's very taking and clever uh, pastiche of what Tarantino would do if he was to come to Yorkshire and make a film about life in Yorkshire. Well, I think I can't really outdo you on the violence front, but my TV program that I'm addicted to with my wife, Victoria, involves the city where you and I met back in 1986, Washington. And this is a story, I'm now on, by the way, series two, episode 15 or whatever. It's a story of a man who is the designated survivor. That's the person who doesn't go to the Congress when the president gives the speech you have one member of Congress, one member of the administration who's put in a secure location in case something happens. Well, the fact is domestic terrorists blow up the Capitol. Kiefer Sutherland suddenly finds himself president. And there we go. And Designated Survivor is on Netflix. If you have any questions for us about the media, do email them to us at mediaconfidential, all one word, at Prospect Magazine. Also, all one word, .co.uk. And we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlick. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter slash X2, at MediaConfPod. Join us next time, and thanks again to the legendary Sir Don McCullough. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.